So I actually want to start with uh, some of the questions that uh, were left uh, yesterday because I did not have the time to cover them. And then I will uh, bring what I want to cover this morning. So, uh, the first question. So, please, could you say a little bit more about this practice supporting the creative function of our thinking and being? Actually, I would say, as I mentioned yesterday, every Buddhist meditation practice which include together the calming and the questioning, so the focusing and the looking deeply, the calming and the questioning, then I would say will help us to bring things back to their creative functioning. But it is true, one of the specificity of asking the question, what is this, is that it combines together the focusing and the questioning in a very vivid, bright way. And for this reason, I think it can really be helpful in terms of coming back to the creative functioning. But otherwise, I would say any practice will do this, but possibly with the questioning, you'll have a little more pumps in terms of the way you practice the looking deeply, the inquiry. Then there was uh, Stephen Portlock who was asking, uh, what is the purpose of asking what is this? Is it going to help us to be in the present moment? So I think it's kind of a little bit, Stephen, he said, well, with mindfulness, this happened. Would the same thing happen with asking what is this? So in uh, asking what is this, again, the same thing happened. As soon as com you come back to the question, what is this? You come back to the present moment. So this is very much the kind of the element of the focusing, which is really wonderful. We come back to the breath, we come back to the sound, we come back to the question, we come back to the present moment. Then is it going to help us still the chat remain? Of course. Again, you come back to the question and you're not lost in thought. So it will have that effect again, of course. Does it help us to develop equanimity? Again, because we are less caught in thought, less caught in habitual pattern, it will also help us to develop equanimity. At that level, I would say that's why I was talking about these two principles of focusing and looking deeply, that as long as you have them in the practice, you will have, in a way, the same effect, being in the present moment, helping with the chattering mind, and helping with developing equanimity. Then there was a question, is it okay to ask the question, is it okay to ask the question, what is this to the particular arising in consciousness, for instance, an emotion, sort of physical sensation. I find myself doing this if, for instance, a moment of anxiety arose. 
and it brought a deeper examination of the felt sense of the emotion. But this in deeper to the widest form of the question which I also used. So indeed, you can do it in a way, in a traditional way, which will be at one level more open with no specific reference point. You can also do it in a more, you could say, mindful way. And when you kind of, you, you kind of point it out to something specific, but by going to that specific place with a question, an open-ended question, then actually it changed your attitude to what you're experiencing. That it be a thought, that it be an emotion. So yes, you can do either. And I think it will depend on what is going on at any given moment. And actually, there is a very interesting story in terms of uh, our teacher, Master Cousin, that one day he went to visit a friend and he walked far, far, far. And when he arrived, the next morning, after he arrived, he had pain everywhere. And then he asked, what is this pain in a way? And then he went through the whole body, kind of systematically, in a way, doing a body scanning, though they don't do it in the song tradition, and he could not find the pain anywhere. And it's totally changed his experience of sensation and in the experience of pain. So at that level, it can be very interesting that we can use it to something if it's there, and at other level, we can really leave it open-ended. Then, is it okay? No, sorry. Does, then there is a question about, does the breathing technique from a certain type of yoga, when you do a tiny sound, can you use this sound as part of the mindfulness of listening to sound? Of course, you can do it, no problem. As long as it does not distract you, and as long as it does not leave you to commenting, or am I doing this right or not? Then another question is, the question is it to the phenomena or to the general being? So actually the question is to both, but in an open-ended manner, because if we look at ourselves, what are we? We are this flow of inner condition meeting outer condition. So, as I said before, you can have it in a total open way, no reference point whatsoever, which is a little challenging. Or you can put it out to phenomena, which will make you relate to them in a different way, that it be outside or inside. And then another one, my teacher often used the expression, it's like this as a support for being with experience, rather than trying to do something with what's there. But it's like this seems to be of a different feel to what is this? Are there different approaches, I wonder? So in a way, when you say, this is like this, it's like this, I think it's really helping us to accept. Because often, something happened and it's kind of like it did not happen or it should not have happened 
is like a child breaking a vase. And the parent might say, you broke the vase. And the child, I did not do it. It's not me. It's not me. I did not do it. It's like, you know, you're not accepting what's happening. You cannot say, no, no, it did not happen. So in a way, it's like this. He's saying, well, it is like this. And so at, at one level, it's really about acceptance. And through that acceptance, seeing what's going on and having a little space around what's going on. And it is true, I would say, what is is as more hope, as Jean-Michel was pointing out to Stephen yesterday, that in a way, what is is for me is really associated with the symbol of awakening of water, of flexibility, of creativity. Because the problem when it's like this, is that then it could lead, I hope not, to resignation and indifference. But what is this is kind of like, I would say there is more creative engagement, but possibly when the teachers say it's like this, is not meaning there is just that, but we also have different ways to deal with it. I would hope so, because that's where we have to be careful. Uh, I would say to just accepting, which leads to resignation, instead of acceptance leading to what I call creative engagement. And I might talk more about this later on. And then the final question or comment. With the question, what is this? I have descriptive word which come up. And this is unavoidable. That time to time, as you ask a question, what is this? For some people, they'll just have like answer or they'll just have description. And they're just let it be. Not all of us have that, but some of us have this. So just let it be. Kind of description come up, just let it be and back to what is this? Or if the what is this seems to create this more, then you can always come back to the breath or you can come back to the listening. And generally that kind of like, you ask a question and it's, you cannot stop commenting or describing generally over time disappear by itself. And then there is a question from Aker. I'm not going to answer question now, but this is kind of a short one. Uh, can I ask what is instead of what is this? Of course. Uh, as I pointed out, you can uh, use a different form of words as long as this doesn't lead to commenting and to proliferation with thought, as long as it brings you right here, right now, then different wording is totally fine. And so now I'd like to talk about the subject uh, of two days, which is actually linked a little to one of the questions yesterday that was asked of Stephen about doubt and self-confidence and no confidence. And actually there is this teaching in Korean Son, which is called about the three great attitudes. And so the three great attitudes are the attitude of great faith, great courage, and great questioning. 
And what is very interesting already, we can see here that you have together great faith and great questioning. So actually, the great questioning we're talking about is not about doubting ourselves. It's not kind of putting in a place where we cannot decide. But I would say the great questioning we are using is totally embedded in a great faith, which actually is going to give us more confidence. So actually, we can question in a confident way. So in a way, I would say when we start to practice, when we start on the path, we generally have what I would call ordinary faith. And often we start with meditation, with the Dharma, and we kind of try to convince ourselves, oh, this is a good idea, oh, my friend, it seems to help them, or everybody talks about meditation, maybe I should do it. I know for myself, when I became a nun, which was kind of just I decided very quickly, oh, let's become a son nun in Korea. And then I tried to convince myself, oh, yes, you know, you will learn kind of to do Tai Chi, you could learn calligraphy, you will learn the meditation a bit, and you can do this for a year or two. See, you know, if it's useful or not. And actually, I never learned calligraphy, I never learned Tai Chi, but I did learn meditation and I stayed there for 10 years. And this is kind of, in a way, the best thing I could I ever do. So, of course, when we start, the faith is kind of more like kind of convincing oneself of something. But the great faith is actually when we know and experience ourselves that this is working, this is making a difference. And that's what I experienced very quickly. Like I was after six months of being there, then suddenly, actually this was really what I found beautiful about the practice of questioning, like any practice which put focusing and inquiring together, is that within a few months, I became so much more aware. This is the first thing that happened to me. I was sitting in meditation asking, what is this, what is this, what is this? And suddenly I became so aware of my thought. And I became aware that my thought were about me. And then I realized, hmm, maybe that's what I have to work about. Like, you know, I realized I was about 95% self-centered. When up to that point, I thought I was the most compassionate person in the universe. So that was like, hmm. But at the same time, it was not judgmental at all. I thought, hmm, that's what's going on. So anyway, in a way, this is, it's like this. That's what's going on in my mind. And now, how can I creatively engage with it? So that for me was very revealing and gave me great confidence, great faith in the practice. But then the other thing which happened is that, again, as I said, I was uh, always wanting to save the world when I was young, and I thought I was an amazing, compassionate person. But, you know, seeing that, I realized I was not, actually. But something happened after six months where really, truly, I thought about somebody else instead of me. 
but I thought of them for themselves, not for my own advantage. And then I realized, hey, this is true compassion. This is really kind of compassion is when you see the suffering you could cause to someone else and you refrain from doing this because you're putting yourself in their shoes. And I thought, oh, that's real compassion. And I thought, oh, the practice, it has helped me to experience this, in a way to dissolve a little bit this self-centeredness. So to me, as we practice, we start to experience the benefit of the calmness, of the clarity, of the creative functioning, of the wisdom developing, the compassion developing. And then we know for ourselves, not only that the practice is working, but that I can actually experience wisdom, experience brightness, experience compassion, experience calm. So I think when we experience it ourselves, I think it makes such a difference to our confidence. Because often we have this a little storyline about, you know, I am not good enough and I can never do this and what is this, what is that? But personally, I think through this practice of questioning, I personally became much more confident in my own potential, in my own possibility, and of course, also within the practice itself. So in a way, great faith in our potential, great faith in our own experience, because that's what the beauty of meditation. Nobody is going to do it for us. Only us can do it. That's why we encourage you in a way to not only uh, sit with Tony and us in the morning, in the evening, but also if you have the time to do more sitting during this week so that you can again develop what I would call the muscle of meditation, the muscle of great faith, and then experiencing for yourself the great confidence in a way. And that great confidence, that great faith, doesn't mean that you have no problem in meditation or in life, but you are going to look at it in a different way. It's like, you know, some people are in the sun right now. They were saying so. We have been in the rain for the last three days. No sun whatsoever for the last three days. So we only see the rain. But I know that above, you have the sun. Above the cloud, there is a sun. The sun is going to come back. And so in a way, great faith is going to give us great confidence. But also, it kind of makes us know in the difficult moment that yes, the sun, the possibility, the potential is there. Even if I am anxious now, even if it's difficult now, because that too, will pass. Then there is great courage. And so, of course, uh, within the Zen tradition, especially the Korean Song tradition, you have all this uh, great story of great courage, of the great nuns, of the great monks. And uh, personally, once I met a nun, I was so impressed by her. 
she was sitting like a rock and she was like, she had such a presence. And so I asked somebody, who is she? You know, what has she done? And then I was told she had been in silence for 10 years. And when we do a retreat at Gaia House, we find it difficult to be silent for seven days. But she'd been in silence for 10 years. But she did not do it because somebody told her to do it. She just because she had the great faith and she had the great courage. So that's what she decided to do. But for us, I don't think we need to be in silence for 10 years. I think this was very specific to that nun. I think what we need is a courage to go beyond our habits. Because I think what is interesting is how we can be stuck within our habits. That it be mental habits, that it be some emotional habits, that it be physical habits. And so in a way, we kind of, our world can be quite small if we stuck within these habits. And so sometimes it can be very useful to have the great courage to go beyond our habits. And so, of course, we cannot go beyond our limits all the time. Of course, we have to be careful there. That sometimes, as I have to be careful right now of my body, with my back, but it doesn't mean that because I have a bad back, I cannot sit on a chair, I cannot meditate, I can still do it. So in a way, it's kind of like, sometimes we think to ourselves, oh, I cannot do this, oh, I cannot do that. And actually the great courage is saying, hmm, maybe you could try a little bit more. So again, the great courage doesn't mean we have to be heroic. But often we think, Nothing or everything. With the great courage, you know, it's nearly like what is the least I could do a little more. Not what is the most I could do. Because that we can be easily paralyzed. Oh, I could not do that. But what is a little more I could do? So, you know, possibly during this uh, retreat together, what is the least I could do in terms of not watching the news whatsoever or being a little more in this meditative space? What can I do to help myself to really be present, to also not be so taken by the daydreaming or the ruminating? Can we come back to what is going now with all this multi-perspective of condition? So in a way, kind of what does it mean for each of us in our condition, this great courage? I think that's what, in a way, the great courage asks us. And then great questioning. And great questioning actually is fundamental. You can call it great doubt, is that spiritual? Because there is this saying in song, great awake, great questioning great awakening, little questioning, little awakening, no questioning, no awakening. So in a way, it's kind of like we need to have that brightness. Tomorrow I'll talk more about the balance between the brightness and the calmness. But really with the great questioning, we want to have that brightness within the practice, of course, stabilized by the focus. So within the questioning, 
I know we talked about it yesterday. It's really challenging because we can, when we question, we're so used to an analyzing. This is not about analyzing. Also, this is not about the meaning of the universe. So really the practice of question is really embedded in ethics, in wisdom. This is very important. So there is always that kind of, you know, framework. It's embedded on it. It's not just what is it questioning for its own sake. You question actually to develop wisdom and compassion. You question to lead a more ethical life. This, I think, is very important. So one, two little technical thing today that you can actually do it with the breath. One technique I learned from one of the teachers in Korea was that you breathe in, and as you breathe out, you ask, what is it? You breathe in, and as you breathe out, what is it? So if some people find that advice useful, you can try it out. But again, you're not obliged to what works. And the same teacher said that over time, when you've developed like a strong sensation of questioning, you actually don't have to repeat the question all the time. So in a way, putting the question with the breath or bringing the question often is more helping with the focus. But once the mind is quite calm, then he used to say, if your question is really powerful, then you can just ask it once at the beginning of the morning. And then the sensation can stay with you for the whole day. Possibly we're not there yet, but we don't have to repeat it all the time. But just to bring it time to time. So we start to have this taste of this kind of like kind of sensation of questioning in the whole body and mind. Then one uh, final point is that, like all practice, this practice of questioning does not suit everyone. This is very important. The breath does not suit everyone. Listening does not suit everyone. Same with the question. I would say there are four types of people with this question. Some people just love it. It really opens up something for them in their practice. Wonderful. Some people sit there and just ask, what is this? What is that? Why am I asking this stupid question? If that's the way you feel about it, don't do it. No point. No point. You know, it doesn't suit everybody. Some people, as I was pointing out yesterday, kind of lead to more thinking. So then again, try to not bring the word imagining oneself more as a question mark or just coming back to the breath, just coming back to the listening and working more with the changing nature of things. Then the last one I mentioned already a little bit is that it can sometimes make us a little anxious. And then if you can be with the anxiety and you can go beyond it, then you can continue with the questioning. But if you lead, if the question leads to too much anxiety, please don't do the question. Just come back to the breath, come back to the listening, and just once possibly in one sitting, bring the question. But don't do it too much. So really to see what suits me 
in terms of this questioning. How is it helping or not? Because really, any meditation retreat is really about exploring what suits me. Because each of us, in a way, have to become our own teacher because we are the one who know about our condition and what is going to be helpful at any given moment. So now, if we can find a comfortable posture, And actually, now that we have all the instruction and a few guided meditation, I do not think that we need in a way more guided meditation. So we'll just do a very silent uh, practice together for about uh, 25 minutes plus. So if we find a comfortable posture, Just when we start with just remembering, being as grounded as a mountain, being as open as an ocean, and within that, if it's you just asking, what is it?
So again, if uh, we might uh, want to stand just for a minute to stretch a little, and then if you want to start uh, putting your comments or your question in the chat, then I will answer them. Uh, the first question, I mean, question, comment, questioning through the senses altogether. Exactly. You could say the whole being is questioning. So in a way, again, it's kind of like uh, infusing the experience with the questioning instead of this tendency we have to kind of like, what is this? Kind of like kind of reducing and wanting an answer and analyzing. It's really kind of more like an infusing of the questioning through the whole body and mind. And as Stephen was pointing out to this experience, of wonderment, of being here fully with all the senses. Then can the questioning eventually become an object by itself versus kind of helping out the investigation? I mean, here like we kind of like, uh, it's kind of like the little angel on the pin, if I may say so, Jean-Michel. Uh, as Stephen was pointing out, you can actually also ask, what is it? That is asking, what is this? So it's a little bit what they call the turning the light to oneself, but not oneself as this self-centered person, but in a way, returning the light onto, onto this multi-perspectival being existing in this multi-perspectival condition. So again, uh, it depends how would you do it. But I would say the questioning, I think we have to be careful of feeling that we might be apart from the questioning, like I am doing the questioning. I would say it's more, I am the questioning and more the questioning is happening. And then it's really more sensation and we really don't have to do so much with it and to kind of, in a way, possibly complicate it. But who knows? Who knows? Uh, okay, then there is a question comment. Can we combine this wide questioning with mindfulness technique at the same time? Like examining a rising emotion, examine the emotion while also asking what is it about our whole experience in the moment. Yes, as I said, you can really uh, do it in more like a traditional way, which is kind of totally open-ended, no reference point. But of course, it can also be very useful to kind of, what is this? And then it makes us look at something with that kind of what I would call creative awareness with that calm, that stability, that kind of inquiry, that brightness. And then the emotion will look, uh, will be experienced quite differently. And kind of in a way, because in that looking, in a way we're also experiencing its impermanence. So I would kind of really kind of like, as you ask the questioning, what is this to that emotional experience or thinking experience? It's kind of like, at the same time, that questioning bring that 
kind of experience of uh, that things are changing and the potential to change. So yeah, you can combine it. Personally, I, for 10 years, I just did the what is this, no mindfulness practice, though I became more mindful while doing it. And then I, could, I learned Vipassana insight meditation. And personally, I think the two combine, complement each other so well. And that each of us can do in different ways. Because in a way, something comes up and generally we identify with it. This emotion, this thought, this is me. And generally we associate. I mean, the thing that we often do is that we experience something and then we're looking for the meaning of it or we associate very quickly. Well, if we do, what is this? Then actually it dissolves the automatic uh, reaction we have to the thought, to the emotion, which often is to kind of get overwhelmed by it. And so you're still experiencing it, but actually by bringing the what is this to it, it's like, hmm. It's kind of, personally, I think it's very close to inside practice because you really go into the experience itself. What is this? And you go into it instead of going into the commenting or the association of it. How is a breathing out with a question different from using it as a mantra? So uh, this technique from that teacher, who is called Song Dan Sunim in Korea, was really at the beginning to really help with the focusing, with the concentration. But at the same time, you're not really repeating it. You're kind of still bringing the questioning within it. I think this is very important. Kind of like you breathe in and as you breathe out, what is this? So you might not do it on each breath because of course, if you do it on each breath, it can become a little mantra line. So you can do it on one breath. Is this? Then stay with the sensation of questioning and maybe two, three breaths later, again, breathing in, again, breathing out. Because the idea is, even if you use on the out breath, it has to bring that questioning, that question mark within it. To what extent is this practice grounding in the teaching of the Buddha? I mean, uh, from the Korean song point of view, it's totally uh, grounded in the teaching of the Buddha. And uh, they will often make reference to Sutta, of course, the song practice is very much within the Mahayana Buddhism. So, of course, it's not necessarily based on the Pali Sutta, but on what has been developed over time. But from a Khorisan perspective, there is really a great emphasis on really kind of studying some of the text from the Buddha to really kind of really part of the Buddhist tradition. So for the Korean song, uh, which means that actually you have, uh, for the monks and the nuns, you have the patting moksha, actually. You, you still totally use uh, the precept for the monk, for the nun, that you will find a little different, but a little same that you would find in Theravada country or Sri Lanka or Burma. So this is very specific to Chinese, the Chan Buddhism and Korean song that they're very based on the precept 
of the Buddha of the early time, and they, they really release this connection with the teaching of the Buddha. But of course, uh, within a Mayana perspective, so it kind of like kind of move on, kind of bring other elements. Of course, of course, with the Chinese culture, with the Korean culture, there is always a little bit of that transformation. There was a very interesting text. Uh, you have two books on uh, Chinese Chan, which are very fascinating. And it's, I mean, Chinese Buddhism, where one book is about how Buddhism changed China and how China, the second book, changed Buddhism. So I think there is always, as the teaching develops in different countries, that you have historical and geographical transformation. But Korean Song is very much based, grounded in the teaching of the Buddha. Can you change the focus between the breath, listening and question during a sitting practice, or do you need to stay with one? This is really up to you. Personally, I do a little bit of what we, I call stacking up, that maybe I start a little bit with the breath, and then I generally feel the question in the belly, and there might be a little sound around it, so it can, which really kind of grounds me, and open me to this moment while asking the question. And I find that not disturbing, it's all kind of, kind of complement, come together. So personally, that's what I do, but I'm not kind of so much shifting as kind of like being within that, these three dimension together. But of course, you could start with the breath, open to sound, and then bring the question. Because what is important, I mean, I would not do this every two seconds, because that's a little agitating but if it happens naturally i would let it happen just like that and to see that what is important is not so much uh, the object the focus as the fact that you are focusing and there is this looking deeply this question okay uh, i find what is is quite triggering in a number of ways so I am working with this by focusing the question on body, sensation, emotion only. That's what I said. This is really, this is not a sacred practice better than any other. Not at all. This is just one method among many others. What is important is that it helps you to develop calm and clarity. And what is important is that it suits you so that you can do it, you can understand it, and it's appropriate for your condition. So if it's triggering, really don't do it very much. And if you want to do it, do it in a way which helps you to stabilize and to open. This is what is very important. In meditation, I see my mind going back over things from a long time ago in the past. It is said that the brain is a sense-making machine. Is a question, what is this? In a way, giving the brain permission not to make sense of things. I would say that when we're sitting in meditation, because there is nothing else to do, I think it's very important to be aware of that. When we sit silently in meditation, there is really no other things to do. So in a way, you have no distraction, nothing. And so generally in daily life, we're generally always doing something or focusing on something or hearing something or seeing something 
So in a way, the brain, the, the mind, the body-mind is really occupied in different ways. When uh, this stops in a way by just sitting still, actually the mind, the brain needs to keep occupied because that's what it does. You know, it's alive, the electricity goes in and the neuron does this thing. And so as we're sitting here, suddenly the oddest thing will come up, thing from the past you've not thought from a long time or just kind of the oddest image or song or whatever it is. And that's because we're not doing anything else. And so this kind of like jets and frots and would come up. And then the question is, do I get caught by that? And then go into the story of the past and move it to the future or think of that nature or bring the emotion of the past into now. And so in a way, the practice of meditation is very helpful as we, in daily life, we cannot actually have lots of imprint and lots of impact and then we kind of easily can react without sometimes being aware of it. So when we see it, in a way, it's kind of we have the impact of this plan, that thought, the past, the future. And in a way, by letting be the breath or the question or the sound, is kind of bringing us back to right now. Of course, you have the thought, but you are not just that thought. There is also everything else. So in a way, you have a wider perspective. And then the past or the future can be just one little element within that wider perspective, and we don't turn to identify with it. So in a way, the sense-making, this is kind of like, this is, I mean, this is just being human, sense-making. But we can have a sense-making, which is, I would say is creative and can live it. Or we have a sense-making which has to kind of, in a way, amplify, which often is not very useful. So I would say, yeah, Meditation in general is kind of helping us not to do what I would call reactive, associative, amplifying sense making, but that we kind of are more like, hmm, this makes sense for itself. I don't need to kind of do more of it. Of course, sometimes we sit and then suddenly we see something, we understand something, and that we can be with that and then explore it. That's what I call meditative creative thinking. And then it passes and we can just kind of give it and back to the breath, to the question. Then there is, uh, can we ask a question in layers? Each time we ask it and start to label or think, we then ask a question of that analysis until it all unraveling wonders. Possibly some people might have to do that. Personally, I'm not kind of that type of thinking type. And so that's not something I would do. But I, I would see that for some people, there might need to be this unraveling just because of the way possibly their uh, mental habit, mental thinking. So then, yes, you might go through these different things. You know, I think some people are more philosophical, more thinking type then they might more have to do this and then kind of uh, arrive at wonder. I think something a little like that happened to Stephen at the beginning when he was in uh, Korea. And he would have, as I said, this long conversation 
with Master Cousin, who then say, do you know what it is? And, Master, and Stephen would say, I don't then go ask, what is this? So yes, a little bit. Uh, you mentioned compassion a couple of times today. I would love to hear more at some point a link between compassion and great questioning or this practice more generally. Not necessarily today, but maybe during the retreat. Yeah, maybe I'll bring this more because personally I feel that actually the questioning, also like any other practice, which combine focusing and inquiring, leads us to a, what I would call creative, wise compassion. I think this is really, you know, with the aim of the exercise. So we are not just practicing to be calm or practicing to be clear, but that by becoming calmer and clearer, then our potential for creative, wise compassion can really express itself. And I will talk more about this possibly tomorrow and of course on Friday morning. After asking a question, an answer related to my physical being would come to my mind, like restlessness, frustration, tiredness. Should I stop myself from answering? It's fine. Because in a way, that's what arises in the moment. And in a way, you can just be with the restlessness, be the frustration, be with the tiredness. So in a way, it's kind of like, what is this? Ah. In a way, I feel like this. And so you cannot, how does it feel, restlessness, frustration, tiredness? And then sometimes it's so there, that's what will be there. So I would say it's kind of not so much an answering, uh, a state of being. That's what's going on. And so when you say, what is this? Then actually, possibly it makes you more in tune with, ah, uh, restlessness. And then you kind of like, helping you to really experience it, and then you experience it, and then possibly you go back to what is this, what, whatever suits. As long as it doesn't lead to, in a way, a proliferation, thinking, commenting. When I sat last night, I found myself having an internal tantrum of, stop asking that question. I stayed with the tantrum and became interested in that. Is this okay? Of course. You see, this is what is interesting. Different practice, we will relate to them or provoke something in us very differently. I remember, you know, like there is a, a lot of friends of mine who really liked two books from female teachers. And I thought, you know, I must kind of, if everybody admire these two female teachers, I should read these books. And so I started uh, one of them. And the person really is about, you know, noting and seeing your thought and everything like that. And so I tried to do that. And then I would keep saying to Stephen, but this makes me tense, this makes me tense. And then Stephen said, well, you don't have to do it. And I thought, indeed, I don't have to do it. So I think, do what works, do what works. And with the question, sometimes that's what happens. Why, why do I need to ask this question? You know, so how does it feel to have a little kind of, you know, tension? And see what is the change of that. 
then just an experience. I noticed that the question trigger unrest and anxiety for me today more than yesterday. Yeah, yeah, this is, I think, part of asking a question. It's kind of like, it has. I mean, one of the advantages with this question is that it generally really brings brightness. Like, wow, wow, what is this? What is this? So it's kind of really using the brightness of the mind. But brightness of the mind can, in a way, there is a fine line between brightness of the mind to a little kind of, one could say, excitement or having a little too much energy or connecting a little too, too much to uncertainty, to anxiety. So in a way, I mean, one thing I would say here is about you experience something like what is it you experience something and you call it unrest and anxiety how does it feel instead of in a way going into the naming of it i mean if it's really too strong of course and you know yourself and you know it's unrest anxiety and it disturbs you Go to the breath, go to the sun, please take care of yourself or loving kindness. But if it's not too strong, just why does it feel like unrest? How do I experience it? Anxiety, how do I experience it? And within the unrest, anxiety, can I still feel some grounding? Can I still feel some stability. Then why, why does some tradition not include technique of body scanning? Because you could say, why does body scanning doesn't include, what is it? Because in a way, each tradition choose something. Like in a way, I mean, if you look at the text of the original text of the Buddha, there are so many ways to practice. And so in a way, each kind of like a different tradition choose a certain angle they're going to work with due to historical circumstances, geographical circumstances, cultural circumstances. And so for whatever reason, uh, the song chant tradition, in a way the technique of the questioning kind of, I mean, it's kind of quite down the line from mindfulness of the body from the Satipatthana Sutta, it's kind of like nearly a thousand years after that. So in a way it has developed, you know, in India it developed over time, in China it developed over time, in Korea it developed over time. So that in a way the body scanning method, in a way did not reach there in that way. And then through the history and culture, they developed more this questioning thing. Because then at that time, what they were wanting to dissolve is intellectualism. Like Buddhism at the time, Son arose, Chan arose in China. It really, I mean, everybody was writing poems and being very discursive and intellectual. And so they, in a way, wanted to go back to the Buddha sitting under the tree. And so they kind of wanted to go back to something fairly direct and simple. And so that's why, in a way, they don't have body scanning and I think different traditions are different things. How can we live an ethical life grounded in not knowing? 
Can ethical principle be meaningful when everything is seen to be contingent and groundless? Mm. Uh, groundless, you'll have to see if Stephen talks about that or not. Personally, it's not a language I use. And personally, I would say that not knowing doesn't mean that you don't know anything. But it means you are not 100% affirming things all the time. We have to see what is this, kind of in a way, what is this questioning for? It's very much embedded in the Bodhisattva precept. It's very much embedded in an ethical life. And I'll talk more about this Friday. But not knowing doesn't mean we don't know anything, as Stephen and Socrates. I'm sure even Socrates, who does not know anything, he knew how to eat, he knew how to do his shopping, or some, telling somebody to do his shopping with him, or whatever. So I think, what is it that is questioned? I think what is questioned is not so much knowledge as affirming knowledge and defining and limiting the meaning. I think that's what is questioned, not the fact that there is knowing itself. But what does it mean to know? I think that's what is kind of in a way being questioned. And how knowing some, something is kind of nearly impelled to, I know this, and it's nearly like we own it and we affirm it. I know it, it's the truth. It's very interesting, you know, from knowing to it's true. It's true for all time. Because I said so. I mean, this is what is interesting at the moment with all this corona and facts about corona and how, you know, I mean, incredible what is true, what is not true, and all the kind of uh, theory, complot theory. And so it's kind of, you know, what is it you know and how do you affirm it? And it's very much within the ethics of. Uh, Compassion, harmlessness. I mean, that was a great teaching of the Buddha. Harmlessness to ourselves, to others. And the song, the question is very embedded in harmlessness to ourselves and others. So it's not a questioning by itself. It's a questioning embedded in an ethical framework. But we'll talk more about this. I mean, I'll talk more about this on Friday. Uh, yeah, and I would not say, I would say, on the contrary, because you know things are conditioned, because you know things are contingent, then all the more so are you going to be ethical because you really understand cause and effect. And you're really looking at, you know, my action, how they're causing harm to myself and others. And how can I investigate my automatic reaction who causing uh, Arm to myself and others. So no, no, I would say conditionality is totally connected to ethics. If you don't put it together, I mean, personally for me, it would be very strange. Also, any advice on how to help our loved one cope with this strange situation of their partner being on silent retreat in their shared home during lockdown? I would say be kind, be kind. Don't be too strict. Uh, be kind, smile, be affectionate, be, be with them in a way where they feel that they're included and not excluded. I think that's very important. 
my meditation, this is self. I'm trying to rest in that, which is clear, bright, empty mind. I'm trying to merge this and that. Why not? Why not? Why not? Uh, Spencer. Yeah, of course, in a way, when we sit in meditation, we can experience quietness and clarity and just be with that. Just be with that. But it might not be mean that every time we meditate, we can be in that state. But when that state appears, yes, of course, it's wonderful to just be in that quiet and clear state. So can you comment how asking the question, can in practice be combined with Vipassana insight meditation? Well, personally, I think kind of, you know, like especially with Vipassana insight meditation, it's kind, of, it's kind of like direct. What I like is a directness. With the question is a directness. What is this? And so in a way, not to define something, but to experience something. And to me, Vipassana insight is about that. Like, you know, you have a sensation in the, in the knee, going inside the sensation. What is that? And being with the sensation without commenting or any way. So at that level, I see they're very complementary. Uh, question brings relaxation in my body. It brings space. It might become a new trick that I will use to relax. Is that a risk? No risk because at time it will work, at time it won't. This is like anything. It really depends on condition. And so sometimes, yeah. The question can really kind of, in a way, bring relaxation in the body and space. But it might not work all the time because it's contingent. The effect of the question is conditioned, is contingent on many different things. Inner condition, outer condition. So at times, yeah, you will have that effect and it's wonderful. And at times, not. So I would not be too concern about that. Just experience it when it happens and enjoy it while it's there, while it lasts, but it might not be there all the time. I think, uh, just one last one. I notice that questioning, developing a presence full of curiosity and openness make me feel childlike various thought and feeling arise, come and go, and I am interested. So in this simple pairing down of experience, will wisdom and compassion arise? Yeah, because we're not just trying to be childlike. We have to be careful. Because, I mean, I, I know when Stephen was talking about big, beginner's mind and uh, child mind and childlike, and personally, to me, I am a little different angle. That when I see, I don't have children, but when I see my uh, sister's children and they were babies, the first thing they seem to do to me is grasp. They hold on to. So yeah, being a child has some beauty and freshness. Of course, they see something and what is that? And then what is that? So they have lots of beautiful questioning. But I would say they also have quite a lot of grasping. So all is there. So yeah, what we're trying to do is more kind of, it's really kind of openness 
to what is going on while over time the wisdom of knowing change. I think this is something which we'll see if we have the time to talk about that when you really question in that way and then it brings you actually to the three characteristics, to experiencing change, to experiencing unreliability and suffering, to experiencing not-self emptiness. So in a way to see that it's all part of that. And that experience, to me, that experience of the three characteristics through the questioning actually is what leads to wisdom and compassion. And maybe I'll talk about that tomorrow. But you know, just kind of, if you know something, I mean, if you know ultimate change, if you know the possibility of change, I think it's really bring a lot of compassion. Possibly I could look at that tomorrow. Okay, our time is up. So thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.